He already knew the answer to the question. I wonder why he asked it. Jesus was used to being peppered with questions. Some folks came to him really wanting to know what this journey towards God really involved. Other folks wanted to expose Jesus as an imposter of God, not the real thing. But the guy who asks the question today, he, he gives a layup. There was really no question on the table, and yet he asks. It's like when you go to a wedding and the couple enters into the sanctuary in all their wedding finery, and the minister comes out and welcomes the guests and says a prayer and then asks, Jason, will you take Stephanie to be your wife? Do you promise to love and comfort her, honor and keep her in health and in sickness, in sorrow and in joy, and forsaking all others, keep thee only unto her as long as you both shall live? And do you know that in 30 years of officiating at weddings and attending weddings, I've never once heard anyone say, nope. <laughs> right on cue, the groom says, I will. Now, in the olden days, this was the third posting. You would post the wedding's event upcoming in the town hall in the square. And then, a few weeks later, you would post it in the church. And if no one came along during those weeks and protested that Jason was actually married to Susie, who lived over in Topeka, then you could proceed with the actual wedding and then you would have the third posting right there at the beginning of the ceremony where everyone would speak now or forever hold their peace before the betrothal was sealed in the book of law. Today, of course, it's different. The bride and the groom answer that question so that they can declare before all of their friends and family and even before God that something in their heart has shifted so profoundly that they are ready to profess undying love to this other human being forevermore. They know. They know that this love will be tested at some point in the future, and so they say out loud that they commit themselves to stay true to these vows to the best of their limited human ability. When the scribe comes to ask Jesus what is the greatest commandment of all, it's much the same. The answer is obvious. Religious leaders all agreed that loving God and loving neighbor go together and that nothing, nothing is more important than love. Today's scripture lesson comes at the conclusion of a series of debates where religious leaders have challenged Jesus. They have posed to him trick questions. The mood has turned hostile as Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. The tension mounts as he makes his way towards the cross. And now comes that question about what Jesus believes is the most important commandment of all. After Jesus says, well, it's love God and love neighbor, the scribe says, yep, I agree. Because who wouldn't agree? Many scholars recall the story of a famous rabbi named Hillel and another famous teacher of that time named Rabbi Shammai. These two popular rabbis taught in the century just preceding Jesus, and they were experts on the Bible of their day, which was called the Torah. According to an ancient document, there was a Gentile 
who approached this famous rabbi named Shammai and said, make me a believer on the one condition that you will teach me the whole Bible, the whole Torah, while I stand on one foot. Shammai was aghast at the question, so he chased the questioner away with a stick. And so the Gentile turned and went to Rabbi Hillel. And he asked him the same question, and Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Bible, the whole Torah. The rest, it's commentary. Go and learn it. Sometimes people call this rule the silver rule because it is so similar to the golden rule. And the ancient philosopher Philo, a contemporary of Jesus, said, lovers of men and lovers of God only attain virtue by half if they are not lovers of men and God. I suppose if we exited now and went out into Ward Parkway and asked the security guards to help us stop every single car that is speeding down Ward Parkway to ask them, what is the essence of religion? What is the purpose of that building over there? I suppose every one of them would answer in some form or another, it's love. If love is the answer that we all agree upon, then why is there so much pain and so much hate in the world? Why does the war in Syria rage on while the rest of the world stands by numbed into silence? Why do kids get bullied when they go to school? Why do families who have been so tight-knit, so close, split apart while settling mom and dad's estate? Why do countries turn away refugees at the border? Maybe we all agree that love is the highest value, but the real test seems to be in how to act out that real love in our lives. The scribe walks away saying, yep, Jesus, that's the answer, and I know it's going to be on the test. In fact, it's already testing me. The scribe notes in his summary of Jesus' answer that too often both he and his colleagues in the temple place something higher than love. They put the burnt offerings and the sacrifices first. That is, they put being right first. This phrase, burnt offerings and sacrifices, might sound to you like it sounds to me like blah, blah, blah. But it repeats a hundred times throughout the Bible, always in reference to following the religious code, doing what is the agreed upon etiquette, being right about stuff. And sometimes we'd rather be right than be loving. A recent story that appeared in several different news outlets told about Ruth Coker Burks. Back in 1984, Ruth was just 25 years old and a young mother when she was visiting her dear friend who had a rare form of cancer. Each day, she would go to see her friend in the University Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And one day, while she was scurrying through the hospital corridor, she noticed a big red bag over one of the patient's doors. The nurses were standing around drawing straws to see who would have to go in and check on that patient. 
Ruth said that she wasn't sure quite what it was, but perhaps it was some higher power that compelled her to ignore that warning on the patient's door and sneak into the room. And there she discovered a man wasting away from an immune deficiency disease that was not yet widely known under the name AIDS. He weighed less than 100 pounds, and he asked her if he could please speak with his mother before he died. She marched out to the nurse's station and demanded the patient's mother's telephone number. You didn't go in there, did you? Yes. Well, there's no use calling his mother. She's not coming. He's been here six weeks and she hasn't come yet. No one has been here. Ruth demanded the telephone number anyway, and she called the patient's mother, and she explained that she would not be coming to the hospital, that her son was already dead to her. Ruth didn't know what to do when she hung up. She didn't know what to tell him the next day when she went back to the hospital, but she quietly slipped back into his room. He had his eyes closed, and he said, Oh, Mom, I knew you'd come. Again, she didn't know what to do. So Ruth went over to his bedside. She took his hand, and she said, I'm here, honey. I'm here. And she held his hand for the next 11 and a half hours until he died. And then she claimed his body as if he was her own flesh and blood, and she buried him in a plot in her family's cemetery. Over the next 10 to 15 years, Ruth cared for and personally buried over a thousand people dying of AIDS. The truth is, we all fail at love. Sometimes we'd rather be right than loving. Sometimes we're afraid that if we love, we might lose ourselves. At the end of the story, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And isn't that where you and I so often live? Not far from the kingdom of God? We know that there is no greater joy than receiving love or giving love. It's what makes us feel completely alive, 100% human. It's what makes us God's own people. And yet sometimes our hearts simply seal over with steel and we cannot get the love to flow again. The pain is simply too great. The risk of further hurt to our own souls is simply too high. Recently, I read a beautiful little novel called Snow Child. It tells the story of Mabel and Jack living in Pennsylvania in the mountains in 1918. After their child is stillborn, they are heartbroken beyond measure. They gather with families at different events like family reunions and picnics and Sunday dinners, but when they do, Mabel feels so self-conscious. Everyone else there has two or three children or is pregnant, and she can just feel them looking at her funny, and she cannot bear it. And so Mabel and Jack pack up the, their worldly belongings, and they leave for Alaska, where they homestead out in the middle of nowhere. And Mabel is so happy to finally be alone, where no one knows her past, no one to ask her about her family or why she is childless. 
She and Jack raise vegetables and live off the land, but sometimes they run short of money at the end of the month. And so he gathers up pies that Mabel has made and puts them inside the carriage and loads up the horse and drives into town to sell her pies. And then he begins inquiring about whether he not, might find a part-time job. In town, he meets another homesteader who invites him over. When he tells Mabel that night that they are going to go and visit another family for supper, Mabel is furious. She doesn't want to go. She wants to stay inside her, her own cocoon of loneliness where her heart is safe from further injury. Reluctantly, Mabel goes. She enters the warm cabin of this other family where they are playing games, a bunch of rowdy boys around the fire, and they laugh and they play and they share recipes. And while they're there, a small piece of the steel door trapping life in love inside of Mabel's frozen heart begins to loosen. And when they get home that evening, Mabel and Jack realize that the first snowfall has come. And they get off of the horse and they begin making snowballs and they run and they play and they laugh in the wide open space and they make a snowman in the yard and they decorate it with Mabel's scarf. Two middle-aged adults playing like children out there in the evening snow. This marks the beginning of a new life for the two of them. I can't tell you the rest. You'll have to read the book yourself. But what I loved about this scene is that even when we don't want it, being a part of a community can teach us how to love again. As human beings, we fail at love. We know that without love, we do not know God. We know that love is the ultimate test of our faithfulness, but love is not an intellectual game. Love happens when we trust our heart into someone else's keeping. On his way to the cross, Jesus looks at us and says, you are almost there. Jesus is the only one I know who didn't fail at love. When he was put to the test, taunted by those who were the ultimate religious leaders, betrayed by those whom he had healed and fed, he continued to love. When we look at this cross every Sunday, we are reminded that Jesus didn't stop loving even when he got hurt. Reverend Agnes Norfleet says, the amniotic fluid of human love is the creative, redemptive love and mercy of God. I think that's so beautiful. The amniotic fluid of human love is the creative, redemptive love and mercy of God. We're almost there, but not quite. We know the test is love. We take the test every day, and most days we get a B at best. Only inside of God's holy, wild, radical, unconditional love might we ever know what it feels like to love another completely. 
You might recall that the Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown and ends at sundown. And so the ancient Jews developed the practice of watching the sky to know when the day was over. I had a friend here in Kansas City years ago named Rabbi Katz, and she had two small children who loved to play video games, and she forbade them to play these games on the Sabbath. And so when the Sabbath was almost over, her kids would go and stand in the front doorway of the home right on the threshold and with one foot in and one foot out craning up to watch one star in the sky appear with their Game Boys in hand so as soon as they saw a star they could hit play and resume their fun. Recently I heard this story from the Hebrew tradition. An old rabbi was teaching two of his brightest students. The students asked the rabbi, how do we know that the night is over and the dawn is coming? The rabbi replies, what do you think? The first student says, it's when it's light enough to tell the difference between a dog and a sheep. And the rabbi said, no, mm -mm, that's not it. And the second student says, I got it, I got it. It's when you can distinguish between a sycamore tree and a grapevine. And the old rabbi shakes his head. Finally, after they petition him again and again, the old rabbi says, it's when you can look into the face of a stranger and see a member of your own family. At that moment, the dawn is coming. <laughs>